Welcome to Saving UX. I'm your host, Jeremy Kriegel, and I believe UX is struggling. I hear from people entering the field as well as those who've been around for decades. I also believe it's worth fighting for. UX done well and applied to important problems can change the world. In this podcast, I interview experienced leaders and practitioners to get their perspective on the current state of UX, where we're struggling, and what they are doing that the rest of us can emulate. With me today is David Dylan Thomas, the author of Design for Cognitive Bias. David, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. David, could you give folks maybe a little sense of your background just so there's some context for uh, the rest of the conversation? Sure. So I've been doing uh, content strategy and UX for 20 years, maybe, um, and uh, in various forms, right? Um, didn't officially say content strategy on my uh, business card until maybe the mid-2000s or maybe, you know, but, um, but different versions of that uh, leading up to that. So um, around the same time, I also started getting into cognitive bias, learning about it from my wife, who is a pediatric neuropsychologist, um, going all the way back to my mother, who was a psych major at UCLA. So always kind of been interested in the brain, uh, but more recently really started digging into cognitive bias and learning all about all the different cognitive biases that there are and noticing this parallelism uh, between what I'm learning in bias and our, our jobs in UX, which has a lot to do with helping people make decisions. And bias is all about how we make decisions. So it seemed, you know, a no brainer to say that, well, if we understand better how people make decisions, we're going to be better at our jobs. So that was the basis of Design for Cognitive Bias, which is a talk I started giving at different conferences and eventually evolved into the book. And really now my business, I have a David Dillon Thomas LLC as of this March, where I basically give talks and workshops to help people learn more about inclusive design um, and, and how bias plays out in our work and how we can um, do a better job. Great. Thanks for that. How would, how do you evolve? How do you see, sorry, the, how do you see the current state of UX? And you've been, you've been doing it for a long time. You said had content strategy. The work has evolved quite a bit. How do you look back on that history? And I guess, what do you think has been some of the positive evolutions and where do you think uh, we're struggling? So we didn't used to talk about bias at all. Like we saw UX as a, pearl, a purely design and technical skill, right? Um, there was this sort of like passing acknowledgement that what we were talking about was at some level psychology, but really it was more, hey, how do we make this easier to use, right? Um, and recently we've been more explicitly talking about, well, there's two things. One, easier to use um, necessarily means we have to talk a little bit about psychology because what's easy and what's not has to do with our brains, has to do with how we process information. So we've been more explicit about having that part of the conversation, I think recently, but more importantly, we've been having a, uh, a moral aspect of that conversation more than we used to, where we talk about things like inclusion. We talk about what should be easier to do, not just making everything easier, but hey, maybe something should actually be harder to do, right? Uh, maybe maybe frictionless isn't always the best solution. Uh, maybe if we rush people into decisions about what to buy, they might make bad buying decisions, you know? Um, and, you know, maybe if we rush how we, you know, inform AI, we're gonna end up with racist algorithms. Like those kinds of conversations are happening much more and it's happening now at the systemic level, which I think is a really interesting development. I've been going to conferences lately and a major theme is this idea that traditional design thinking uh, perpetuates white supremacy, right? And that was not something, the words white supremacy did not appear at design conferences prior, that I've been to anyway, prior to let's say the past two years, honestly. Um, I think 2019 is the first time I really 
heard that at a design conference. Uh, design and content conference has been at the forefront of this, by the way. And that was, um, uh, I think it was in 2019 when I went, and, and, or 2020, and I saw like just talk after talk. No, it was 2020. Talk after talk was sort of like explicitly calling out white supremacy. So that's a fairly new development where we're sort of realizing that design is not this, you know, walled garden that just takes place within the confines of agencies and design departments, uh, that it does in fact create products that live in a society. And that society, you know, is largely racist and sexist <laughs> and capitalist. And we have to, we have to reckon with that and we have to design in a way that is responsible and is aware of that. So I'd say that's sort of on the plus side. I mean, on the downside is just nothing new, right? We still have systemic racism and sexism and, um, ableism and, um, uh, you know, uh, a transphobia, like all of those things are still here. It's just that we're starting to recognize them more. Um, but the shortcoming is obviously that they're still very, very well financed. They're very, very well, you know, embedded. And, you know, we have a very long way to go in terms of, you know, not just awareness, but literally understanding how do we change the inherent systems that we're using to design and do UX in a way that leans into inclusion instead of denies it. For someone listening who may not have made that connection between traditional design practices and the promotion of white supremacy, not to minimize it, but is there like a simple example that you can give that might help connect those dots for people? Sure. I mean, I think the, the a lot of the the critique and there and there are better people than me to talk to about this critique. There's literally a talk called "How uh, Design Thinking um, Perpetuates White Supremacy." But um, but the basic idea is that if you think about how power plays out in the traditional design process, right? Um, usually, the people that we are designing for, right, who are going to use these products and be not just use them but be impacted by them, right, uh, have very little power in how those things get designed. So even if you have a fairly um, progressive UX uh, function or a company that allows for lots of research, right, in that UX function, which is still very rare. Um, they're really only gonna talk to people who are gonna buy the product or use the product, or if it's an internal thing, who are gonna use that internal product, right? Uh, and even once they've talked to them, they're probably, once they've designed the thing, never gonna talk to them again. Uh, maybe they'll do some user testing, which again is still fairly rare, <laughs> but if you get lucky and they actually have budget to do some validation, great, you're going to get that. But again, the final say is not going to be with the people you're validating. With the final say is going to be with the person who is paying the bills, right? Which is, that's how capitalism works, right? I put up the risk by paying for the thing, therefore I get final say. That though has inherent shortcomings because that is a very easy way to perpetuate uh, existing power structures. And those existing power structures, frankly, if you're talking about the US and honestly, a lot of the world, are white supremacist power structures, right? Because colonialism. So at the end of the day, um, even if you're kind of designing with the user in mind, the person paying the bills is the person who is actually going to decide what gets implemented, how it gets implemented, and the impact of that on society, right, will then get felt. So um, kind of a weird example, but I think an interesting one is to think about something like Uber, right? If I were to do a traditional design thinking approach to building Uber, like uh, pretend it never existed and we're just building it on day one, and you would say to yourself, okay, we actually have a research budget. Who should we talk to? Well, you would say, clearly we need to talk to um, people who are in the gig economy because they might likely be our drivers. We should talk to people who don't have cars because they might likely be our customers, right? And you'd pretty much stop there. It would never occur to you to talk to taxi drivers. However, taxi drivers are going to be greatly impacted by your product. 
And if you expand the scope of who should we talk to to include who is going to be impacted by this thing, not just who are we going to make money off of, you would naturally include taxi drivers. And if you did, you'd actually be saving yourself a lot of headaches because as we all know, Uber had city after city and country after country of trouble with the existing right transportation infrastructure, right? Which they actually might've been able to avoid. Um, there's a very interesting case study with Taiwan. They actually might've been able to avoid if they had in fact built Uber with taxi drivers in mind instead of purely seeing them as the competition. But that's an example of how if you're expanding the frame of UX thinking, not just to who was gonna use this, but who is gonna be impacted by this, you actually end up with some very interesting and I would say more uh, useful and pro-social results. Yeah, it's reminded me, I was just listening to Mike Montero's, uh, I think it was Ruined by Design. Mm, and, yeah. he, and he has an example, you know, the, the founding team at Twitter was exactly all dudes. And so there was nothing around harassment or anything put in. And when, when the, uh, he had talked to the woman who came on, and, I, and I'm, I don't remember her name offhand, who came on to lead that initiative. And he asked her, if you'd been part of the founding team, when would this, these types of features been released? And she said it wouldn't have gone live without them. Yeah, but you have a group of people who've never been harassed. It's it's not it's not an issue. So, and this is this is why representation matters, yeah. right? Like if she had been on the team from day one, it never would have launched without a blocking feature, right? Um, so that's kind of the other thing. If we're talking about the shortcomings of UX currently, is it's mostly white dudes. Like it's increasingly like I would say, the best gains have been uh, in women in UX, but even then, it's still. Uh, largely at the junior or, or mid-range level, right? In terms of senior leadership, we don't have a lot of VPs of UX or women. We don't have a lot of CEOs. We don't have a lot of people in the upper in the leadership of whether it's a design firm or the design function of a company in-house. That is still largely white male. Um, and, and as a result, like I said, it's the CEOs, that it's, it's the, that's where the decisions are being made. And therefore, that is where the impact is being determined. So... Again, if we could make that team more inclusive. So in my, in my book, I talk about a couple of things, right? In my book, I talk about how there are certain approaches you can take from a design perspective, design choices you can make that are purely design choices that can either mitigate bias or even sometimes use it for good, right? Uh, so for example, we know that if things rhyme, they seem more believable. So right there, it becomes this sort of duty to make sure that if something does rhyme, it better be true, right? <laughs> but that becomes like a design technique or a content technique, right? But we also talk, I also talk a lot about how once we start talking about our biases as designers and how do we curb those, it gets a lot more into processes that A, force us to challenge our thinking and not just assume that the first idea we have is the best one and bring in other people to, you know, um, validate that at a bias level or, or an ethics level, right? But also to say, we need to be hiring differently, right? We need to have people on the team who have a different lived experience than us. And it's not that they won't be biased, but they will be biased differently, right? They'll be biased in a way that it makes them aware of problems we never would have seen. And I would say that is the other big shortcoming in UX right now. And I would say just in general in the world, right? <laughs> in the halls of power where decisions are being made, whether it's about design or public transportation or the criminal justice system, pick any important decision that's being made. It's still largely being made by, you know, old white dudes and that's limiting. So you're, you're clearly seeing some change as you felt that you can now devote your professional life to educating people on this. Yeah, I, I, I compare it a lot to, you know, being a firefighter like a firefighter doesn't want there to be a fire, but when there is a fire, they're, they're glad that they have the skills to help. <laughs> like I, we, we were already going to launch the book. We launched, the book came out in 2020, August of 2020. 
And that was always the plan for it to come out in 2020. But as soon as we, as soon as the 2020 became 2020, <laughs> it became clear that there was a need for the book. And so a book apart tried to get this finished. Like they, they put the pedal to the metal to get it out as soon as possible. Um, and I'm glad it came out when it did. I'm glad I was able to contribute something to the conversation at that point, because I was, you know, like everybody else, I was at home trying not to get coronavirus, <laughs> like in the middle of like, um, the world being on fire and it's like is there anything i can do to help okay well maybe these ideas are getting out there and you know not for nothing but 2020 the number of roles with the title chief diversity officer as a role the number of companies with that increased by like 80 percent so whether genuinely or disingenuously <laughs> a lot of companies started saying we need to throw money at this so that, I mean, that, that, that has been enough of a hunger for this, again, whether it's genuine or not varies from case to case, but there's enough hunger for this to be like, okay, I can actually full time devote myself to trying to educate people about this and honestly get them excited about it. Um, that's, that's almost as much of my job is just getting people excited about the possibilities of inclusive design and how it can make you a better designer and how it can make you a better company more than just, oh, here's this other box we got to check off, right? Um, I apologize. I don't know if that's where you were going with that question, but that was sort of like... <laughs> no, I, I try to keep the uh, the questions open-ended to see where, you, where folks are going to go with them. Um, as you're having these conversations, like, like you said, there's a, there's a bit of a cultural moment that is encouraging this, you said, whether genuinely or disingenuously. Where do you find, um, like, I guess, genuine connection? Mm. And where are you encountering resistance? And I'm really, the reason I'm curious about the second is, is not to like beat on people, but I'm curious how you overcome it so that right. folks who are having these conversations in their own organizations might benefit from, from your experience there. Sure. Well, to kind of answer the last part first, I think that um, the, middle, the middle section of my book, my book breaks out bias into three parts. One, there are the biases that our users have. Two, they're the biases that our stakeholders have, right? The people who decide how we spend our time, whether that's our boss or our client. And then finally, our biases as designers. So that middle part might as well be called how to Jedi mind trick your company into doing the right thing. And that's where you're going to find kind of all those techniques for like, how do I on the ground with very little power start to move the needle? That having been said, my own personal experience with this is I am in this weird situation where because of the sign I've put on my shop window, <laughs> um, I, it kind of self-selects for people who are already inclined to say, yes, we want more inclusive design. Like I literally, one of my products is inclusive design workshop, building a bias-informed practice. Like you don't read that uh, as a um, ultra conservative, I don't think we're doing anything wrong company and say, sign me up for that, right? <laughs> you, 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 if, if you're gonna walk into that shop, you already think that you have um, somewhere to go, that there's something you could be doing better, right? So I, I rarely, it's a long-winded way of saying I rarely meet a lot of resistance. Yeah. Um, I think what I do, it is around almost the opposite of what you'd expect. It isn't so much a, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable like changing how I design. I don't know if there's really a need to serve these other constituencies that aren't, that, that, aren't, that aren't like me, that don't look like me. If anything, it's the opposite of, I'm, I'm afraid to do the wrong thing. I wanna help, but I'm so scared of doing the wrong thing. And frankly, having those folks I'm trying to help be angry at me um, for messing it up, like, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to start. Like I encounter that resistance a lot more mm -hmm. than I encounter any kind of like bigotry, right? Although there's a way in which some of that resistance has a little bit of bigotry in it. Um, the, 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 the kind of resistance I get is more almost like 
I don't want to say oversensitivity, but like uh, um, a hesitancy, right, to do something that could backfire. And and what I have to do in this case is just explain, look, there is no version of this world, if you're doing inclusive design work, that nobody gets angry at you. Like, this, that just doesn't, that's not an option. <laughs> like, doing any kind of inclusivity work, doing any kind of work where you are dealing with, let's say, thousands of years of injustice... <laughs> There's no version of the world where you're making that better and nobody gets angry at you and everyone thinks you did a great job, right? Because even the people you're, the groups, the excluded groups you're trying to help are not monoliths and they will disagree on what you should do. Your role as an ally is something that no group you want to be an ally to is going to be on 100% agreement. That's how you should be an ally. No, they're going to have different opinions because they're people and people have different opinions about things. That's part of the point. So that's one of the first illusions you have to let go of is that I'm going to, I'm going to feel good about myself the whole way through this. Like, I'm not going to be uncomfortable. Um, Mike Montero, we were talking about before, just uh, has a new talk called My People Weren't Shipping. And it's all about the need for and the guarantee of discomfort. Like, if you don't feel uncomfortable, you're probably not doing it right. Right? You're probably not actually risking anything. And that's kind of part of what makes the good work the good work. If you're really risking something, you probably are helping. If you're, if you're doing something that has, has a real cost to you, you probably are helping. Like going back to the genuous versus disingenuous companies, I think a good example of a company that was at least making some progress and making some sacrifices to do better by society was when IBM last summer said they weren't going to pursue um, facial recognition anymore. Like they had a bona fide, big old facial recognition like program in place. Um, in fact, I was just watching um, Algorithmic Justice League's video earlier where they were comparing how different companies' facial recognition software did against um, uh, looking at basically uh, distinguishing male and female, and doing and, and doing that along the lines of uh, lighter skin versus darker skin. And you know, spoiler alert: they did the worst with black women. Big shock. But um, but uh, and IBM was one of the main three ones they countered. And I, I was watching the theme myself. Oh wow! If they made that video today, IBM wouldn't be there because IBM just doesn't do that anymore. And it's kind of a good thing because they were kind of not good at it. But. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 like that to me is something okay you are actually saying we are going to dump god knows how much money invested in research because it's better for society now i'm not giving ibm a pass and i'm i'm sure that calculations were made like around just how much is it going to cost us right um but but that's to me looking at it from the outside that's a real move that's a real shift that is that is something that's costing them and actually helping others because that's one less company one less vendor producing software that could be harmful to society yeah i i hear that you know in, in the beginning we talked about um how teams struggle just to do research mm -hmm. and a lot of teams a lot of people are solo practitioners and they're they're outnumbered and they're overwhelmed and they have trouble connecting with users they have they're blocked every turn how how can they go about incorporating this work into their practice, you know, given some of the, some of the tough constraints that a, a lot of us are facing? Sure. So, so there's a couple of things, right? Uh, the, the, there's a short game version of this. And the short game version is once the SOW is signed and like all the tasks and the project plan is in place, there's not a lot of wiggle room you have, especially if you're working on like a, a fee-based structure, right? It's like you have to turn in this research report by this date. We have to return in these wireframes. Like it's not even like a time and materials thing. Like you're very, very limited in your scope. Like there's not a ton you can do at that point. Um, so 
making sure you don't get to that point is the long game. We'll come back to that. But in short game terms, it really is about convincing the stakeholders with whatever William you have of the risks of not doing research, right? So there's a bias called loss aversion. And the way it works is that it hurts twice as much to lose something as it feels good to get something. So it hurts twice as much to lose $10 as it feels good to find $10 like stuffed in your couch or something. So the bigger the company, the more risk averse and loss averse they tend to be because they have more to lose. So if you're dealing with a risk averse company, it's like, I don't know if we have time for research. Uh, um, what you want to do rather than point out the upside of, um, of doing research, it's actually more powerful to promote the downside of not doing research, right? Um, talking about the downside of not taking the risk is more, is more potent when, when you're dealing with someone who's risk averse. So instead of saying, here's all the awesome stuff that'll happen if we do research, you sort of say, okay, well, if you don't do research, here's like all the market share that you're going to lose out on. Cause guess what? Your competitors did research and that's how much they have. Um, here's how many people are going to get angry at you because you didn't include them and their needs in this stuff. Uh, here's how, how likely you are to guess you are to guess wrong about how this is going to work or that's going to work. Here's all the things people are going to write about you on the internet, like whatever it is, they're like really driving them, whether it's money, reputation, whatever you sort of say, okay, that thing you love, um, here's all the ways it's going to, you know, go south if we don't do research, right? That, that ends up being a more persuasive argument if they're, if they're risk averse than, than saying, Hey, here's how much everyone's going to love you and how much more money we'll make if you do, the, if you do the research. So that's one of many different sort of bias informed slights of hand you can do in the long term, though, where, where you really want to get to is to a position where they're not even approaching you as a UX practitioner less do they want the research. You get a reputation for the reason I'm good at what I do is because I'm great at research. I know how to ask the right questions, right? Of the, of the right people at the right time. And as a result, I do this great work. And so people don't come to you unless they want really great research, right? Um, so uh, you think about places like, you know, IDEO, at least back in the day, like people didn't come to them unless they wanted all this really ethnographic kind of like in the weeds, kind of like in brilliant thinking, right? Nobody, nobody went to IDEO and said, I already have, I already have the plans. I just want you to design it. That, that was, that, that was a waste of money, right? Which by the way, as you specialize, you actually get to charge more. Um, but you sort of want to get to the point where people aren't approaching you unless they want that. So you don't have to fight for research. It's more like they're only coming to you because they want research, right? And a lot of that is, you know, content strategy. So where I used to work at Think Company, we were, you know, uh, developing this inclusive design practice. And so part of the pitch was I would go out and talk about inclusive design. People would become interested in it. And it would, they would associate that with Think Company. And so people would specifically come to Think Company. And we had more than one um, request for proposal where it was like, tell me how you do this part of the job more inclusively than the competitor. Right. And so I could talk about things like red team, blue team. I could talk about things like assumption audits and actually put it in the proposal because they were asking for it. Right. So rather than me having to go back after we signed the SOW and say, okay, can we please do an assumption audit or can we please have one day for red team? It was like, no, that was, it's in the SOW. I have to do it. <laughs> so you're here, you're talking about it as a competitive differentiator. Yes. That is exactly where you want to get to. And the companies that were, I mean, again, I, I could talk about where I used to work at Think Company. Right now, if you think about, if you think about the arc of accessibility as a practice and as a, a, a knowledge base, right, it's a very similar arc that I think inclusive design is beginning right now. So currently, um, if you do a job with um, uh, my old company, Think Company, like the SOW template says we will do this level of accessibility work 
and no lower, right? I forget if it's double A, triple A, whatever it is, but whatever it is, it's like, that is what you're getting. If you want less, tough, you're getting this, right? Now, I don't know if that was how it started 10 years ago. I'm, I'm sure that evolved over time, but certainly 20 years ago, that wasn't even in there because there wasn't that level, right? So you went from accessibility being this thing that you had to argue and fight for tooth and nail to this thing that's literally baked into the work. It's baked into the legislation, it's baked into whether you get sued, and it's baked into like just the practice. Like you cannot get uh, a, a website from any reputable <laughs> web firm <laughs> that, that isn't accessible, right? And I kind of want, you know, and there are people who will come specifically to groups because they're good at accessibility. I want to get there with inclusive design. I want it to get to the point where it becomes a this differentiator, right? Like I'm coming to specifically, but eventually I just want it to be like, well, there's no reputable design firm in the world who's going to do non-inclusive design. Why? But that, that's ridiculous, right? I want I want to get to that level. Do you think there'll be a comparative uh, grading system in that sense? Like I, I meet level one, two, three, and and there'll be a way to measure your level of inclusivity. There are people actually working on this already. There's, um, I forget the, the name of it, uh, but it's kind of like a tech spec for um, pro-social design. Uh, there's actually several people working on for different versions of this now, but I know of one in particular. Uh, so the answer is yes. I think there's going to be some version. I don't know whether it's going to be as codified as accessibility is. I don't know. Um, I would like it to be. And I would very much, you know, if you begin the conversation around how do you institutionalize these things and guarantee them, and start to have the conversation around things like licensing for designers and like what does a lead certification equivalent look like for good inclusive design. Um, I think those are important conversations and, I, and I, I know designers get twitchy about them. I personally don't get twitchy about the concept. I think anybody doing work that can harm people, there needs to be some kind of third party structures in place to mitigate the possibility of the harm just like we do for just about everything in the world, everything else in the world that can kill you, like food or medicine or cars, right? <laughs> um, uh, or law, right? Like we have these things in place to, to mitigate that harm. Um, what I do get twitchy about is the idea that institutions are a really easy way to scale bias, to scale inequity. And so my solution, whenever I talk about licensing, for example, I always say, and the people determining the requirements for the license should be people that have been harmed by design, right? I want the people with the least power to be making those decisions. Not a bunch of old white guys who've always been easy come, easy go with design. No, I want people who have been on the business end of bad design choices to be making the decisions about, okay, what? how do we guarantee good design choices? That to me is a way to balance out and account for how easy it is to turn something like licensing. Because licensing, it can be like, oh, you gotta pay this much right? To get your license already. I've just, I've, I've excluded a whole bunch of people who can't afford it. Yeah. Right. So what, what do you think would be some of the, like some of the baseline requirements that we should have as a practice in order to, in order to be allowed to practice? To be allowed to practice. Wow. Um, I think that this is like a semester's worth of thinking in five minutes, but, <laughs> but no, I, I, I would want to put myself. So if a, I wouldn't even necessarily want to be the one making those decisions. Like, I don't think I've been on the business end of bad design nearly as much as black women or indigenous people or, or trans people. Like I want those folks who have experienced these things, right. To sort of say, okay. And I think there would also be some expertise around people who understand how these systems work. So people have studied these systems to say, okay, well, if you want to account for that, you really got to do this, that, the other, right? But but I, off the top of my head, I would say some version of um, education around um, 
systemic injustice, like some baseline understanding of how systems work, of how – and it might even be simply a matter of – because, again, I'm aware of every time I say a requirement, I ask myself, who would be left out of that? Who would find difficulty getting that, right? And so even saying, hey, I think you should have some kind of social science education, great. Who's paying for it? Yeah. Right? Because if they have to pay for it, I've already excluded a whole bunch of people, right? So I think I, I would be very careful. And maybe it's as much about saying not only here are the requirements, but here's how we're going to make sure you're able to get those yeah. requirements. I think that actually accessible. is as important yeah. a part of the conversation as saying, okay, I don't want you designing this app lest you understand this amount of social history, this amount of injustice, this amount of psychology. And to make sure you can, here are all the structures I'm going to put in place, right? I think that's a more equitable approach. Um, I think a lot about the story I heard of, there was a kid with like, I don't know, it was like a lemonade stand or some equivalent, right? And someone got open arms because they were basically selling lemonade without a license or whatever. I don't know, what it, you know, something like that, right? And so the, uh, I think it was a police officer, but whoever it was who shows up, like the lemonade inspector, I don't know who does these things, but the person who showed up to sort of be like, okay, you can't do this without a license. Instead, what they said was, okay, let's help you get that license, right? They saw it as their job not to shut people down, but to enable people to do the thing they wanted to do. I think that approach to licensing would be a much more powerful and, and, and helpful one than a, okay, a gatekeeping approach, right? It can't be about who do I want to be allowed to design at a sort of identity level, right? I think that's where we get into this very colonialist attitude about like, okay, we're going to make it so that only this particular group is able to design. Instead, it should be about what does good design look like and how do we make as many people as who want to be able to do that work? That is a very different design question, right? How might we <laughs> allow as many people as want to do good design? That's a very different question from how do we make sure nobody ever does harmful design? And the beauty of it is if you answer the first question, you actually deal with the second question, right? Because if I'm only enabling good design and enabling folks to do good design, it's, there's, there's, less, there's, there's more friction around trying to do bad design. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. It reminds me of uh, part of the conversation I had in the last episode with uh, Margot Blumstein, also a content strategist. Yeah, Margot! Uh, Buy her book. It, I just read it. It's, it's awesome. It, it is really good. And, and in the book, there is a, a passage where uh, someone I think from the from UK's NHS says, uh, poor health literacy leads to poor health outcomes. And we talked about, well, does is the same true in design? Does poor design literacy or poor bias literacy lead to you know, poor design and, and, and increased bias? Absolutely. In fact, I'll go even better. Um, I'm going to blank on his name, but someone uh, was talking about power literacy. So power literacy is this idea of like, I don't know where you live, but any, any stop signs near where you live? Plenty. Plenty. Okay. Who decides <laughs> where, where those stop signs go? I have no idea. Exactly. I the town and, I, and, I have, or someone and I have no idea. I have no idea who decides where the stop signs where I live go. That that is a lack of power. That is a basic lack of power literacy when you think about it, right? Um, but I think most people don't. Most people don't know how almost anything works, <laughs> right? I, you know, a friend of mine once said like. Do you have no idea how many things have to go right for water to come out of your tap, right? And some of those things are legislative. Some of those things you actually have some degree of power over, right? But you don't know. We don't know how much power we have. And as a result, so poor power literacy leads to poor uses of power. Like part of the state of the world is a lot of it is due to just very greedy, selfish people being in positions of power. 
But part of those greedy, selfish people getting into power is in part based on lots of people having no idea how it happens, how anything works, right? And not even being aware that they could in fact influence the outcome of this, that, or the other. And to be fair, most people who are trying to hold on to those seats of power would rather that information not get out. <laughs> you know, like we could spend the whole rest of the podcast talking about voter restriction laws at the moment. But, um, but yeah, I think power literacy, and you can think about that in terms of design as well, right? Like what do we, the designers have power for? That's kind of what I'm playing with in the book is this notion of, you know, what is our power as designers? This is a lot of what Mike talks about in um, uh, uh, Ruined by Design, is what is the actual responsibility set of a designer? Um, and I, I'm playing kind of in that same water of saying, okay, look, as a designer, you may not realize this, but every choice you make has some unconscious impact on the person experiencing that design, right? So there's a thing called... Um, uh, Primacy, basically, it's it's this bias around um, uh, the order of things and how the order of things affects like how we remember it, for example. So yeah. if I give you a list of random words, you're most likely to remember the first word I said and the last word I said and least likely to remember the stuff in between. And it's a similar thing that happens when you like go down a page, right? The stuff at the top of the page seems to be the most important stuff. So if I put anything at the top of a web page, anything, you're going to think it's the most important thing. Like that, like on, a, on an instinctive level, that's going to be the impact. So I am making a design choice that's affecting how you see that thing. So even if I picked it at random, it's still going to have an impact, right? I can't, there, all of us should say there's no such thing as neutral design. We have power as designers. And so we have a responsibility for using that power wisely. So that is a form of power literacy that I think I'm trying to instill in the book. But power literacy in general is something I think we could all use a lot more of. I'm curious. I think this is a great topic. Is there power that designers are abdicating that we should reclaim or power that we don't have and others are others have that we should fight for? Both. I mean, I think that one of the most remarkable things that happened when I was writing the book was I talked to a friend of mine, uh, uh, JT Koble, I used to work with. And, uh, and I, I, I mentioned them in the, in the acknowledgements, but um, the whole last little bit of the book, I talk about this idea that the fight for the soul of design and the idea of what is design responsible for is super old. It's as old as design itself. You go back to Bauhaus, you go back to post-World War II. There were all these notions that design is going to save the world, right? That is a very old, old notion. Um, and we've been having this conversation over and over again. So yeah, there's definitely a power that we at least claimed to have <laughs> back in the day um, that we should absolutely continue to, to fight over because yeah, there is a, there's, a good disease, there's a good deal of power we have at the functional level. Like I said, like actual design choices have impact at a subconscious level, which is a really profound and dangerous thing to be playing with. Um, but also at the organizational level, like, like, well, let's talk about unions, right? How many designers unions do you know about? Right. Um, and at the union level, like part of the reason you're seeing more anti-union legislation than, than ever before is because people recognize the power of a union. Like, especially now we see the power of what happens when people have options, when people have power over where they choose to work and the working conditions they have. Um, there's a similar power that, you know, a design union could have around um, like what we do or do not choose to work on. The, um, the Never Again Pledge is this amazing document that a bunch of folks created who were in software engineering and data science 
Um, and it was specifically around a moment when their work and data was being used to hurt immigrants. And they created this document that listed out, here's this horrible history of how data has been used to hurt excluded populations. We do not want to be a part of that history, right? And we're talking about things like, you know, going back to IBM and not letting them off the hook. Like IBM had some, you know, dealings with data that supported the Holocaust. Like they were involved with Nazis. Like they just were. I mean, that's just, so like data can and has been used to cause horrible harm. Um, and they said, look, we don't want to be a part of that history. And here's a list of things that we will do to make sure that never happens up to and including destroying unethical data sets, right? Um, and a whole bunch of folks signed that document. And it becomes basically this thing of saying like, you can go this far and no further and collectively we'll just quit or we'll just, you know, resist you because you need us. Like this is another point Mike makes in his book. They need you. Like yeah. they, they, they cannot do, they're not designers. They're, they're money people for the most part. They're people who understand how to report to shareholders. They are not people who understand how to design a website, right? Or how to create a data set. Um, so they need you. Um, and if, and again, it's this, it's the difficulty of collective action. If only one of you or two of you says, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Great. I can replace you. If like 50 of you, a hundred of you say, yeah, we're not going to, we're, we're, we're going to walk out. That's a problem. I can't replace a hundred of you overnight. I can't replace a hundred of you in time for, you know, the earnings report. Right. <laughs> so that, that kind of collective action, I think is important to, again, go back to power literacy, like knowing that that is a power you have if you can stick and work together, which is always the rub, right? Actually working together is a lot harder than just giving your power over to one person and just saying, okay, you sign the checks, you, you, you decide. Uh, there's, there's so much there. Um, and we saw the, like Google had, has had people organize, Microsoft has had some organized, but they've been fairly small considering the abuses that have happened through software, through digital products uh, in our industry. And a lot of people, I think, just either feel, and, and, and Montero you know, completely tears the argument apart, well, if I don't do it, someone else will, or I need my paycheck. And there's lots of other reasons that folks give for not standing up when they're being asked to do unethical things. What kind of support do you imagine that would give people that that safety to feel like they could stand up for the things they really believe in or should they should we just say that being able to be safe is privilege in and of itself and you should stand up anyway a, a little bit of both right so there are different levels of vulnerability and again uh, mike talks about this too in his book and i, I applaud him for doing it like he says look i am not going to pretend that for some of you your visa status your job is d defines your visa status. And if you mess with your job, you might have to leave the country or your health insurance. Um, uh, well, you're, you're, you rely on your job for your health insurance. And you, if you, if you lose the job, that's, that's a serious problem for you because you have pre-existing conditions or God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So it's sort of like determine your own level of vulnerability before you make some of these decisions that having been said, so a, we're getting to a point now where money isn't as much of a motivator as you might think. We're getting to a point, I mean, so you look at the, the current uh, fufura over uh, restaurants uh, and other businesses, service industry, uh, having trouble filling roles, right? And this whole, you know, conservative argument that, oh, well, that's the entitlement economy for you. If you give people unemployment checks, they're not going to want to work. And then the counter argument, which is, um, 
Yes. Yeah, so basically those are horrible jobs. <laughs> and why would we want to take, take those horrible jobs when there's any other option at all? Yeah. And you're starting to see some of these businesses are upping like $17 an hour for a dishwasher, right? That's new. And even then they're still having trouble, right? So you're getting to a point where on moral, moral grounds are starting to overcome economic grounds. Uh, so a really interesting thing happened uh, in 2008 when the, uh, when the market crashed and everybody was out of work. And this really interesting thing happened where that was one of the biggest entrepreneurial booms, um, at least in Philadelphia, but I, I'd say across the country, especially in like people doing tech startups and all that stuff. And part of the psychology of it, I, talking to one, I, I did a documentary um, about this uh, back in the day and talking to some of the founders, they were saying, look, we were in a position where people were out of work and you could either try to get another full-time job, which you might not be able to get and might not last, or you could take just as much of a risk and say, look, I'm just going to try to start my own thing. And at least that way I'm doing what I'm failing at what I want if I fail, yeah. right? Versus failing at a thing I didn't want to do in the first place. So it's basically it changed the the notion of what risk meant. And I feel like we're in a similar point now in economic history where the powers that be forgot to bribe the middle class. If you look at my my generation, Generation X, we were pretty much the last generation to do as well or better than our parents. But if you look at millennials and even more so at Gen Z, they're doing worse, right? Considerably worse, like hold down two or three jobs worse than their parents did, right? These are This is a generation who like, I don't think home ownership is in their future, yo. <laughs> right? Um, and for them, right, they can look at something like capitalism, where in my generation it was like, oh yeah, capitalism, yeah, it's great. Why would I ever question capitalism? They're taking the same look at capitalism and saying, what has it done for me lately? Why do I why why should I why shouldn't I question capitalism? Like it's brought me nothing but misery. And as I look around me, I see a lot of people who like Maybe I'm a white guy who's making less money than my parents, but these black guys over here have been make, making less money than their parents for generations. <laughs> that's nothing. That's Tuesday to them, right? <laughs> and so you're starting to get this coalescing of a notion of like, why, 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 why should money be the thing I pursue? Basically, there's a distrust of money as a goal. Yeah. That is something that has been becoming increasingly pervasive, um, even in design, right? And so out of that, you have two things. On the personal level, you have this idea of like, maybe I don't want to just be motivated by money. You're not just going to throw a bunch of money at me and say, do whatever, do, do whatever the company wants. Do hurt this population over here because I paid you to. That's not as appealing as it used to be. And then on the other hand, and the other thing that happens is you start to have groups coalescing. And this is where it gets interesting. You have the Algorithmic Justice League. You have the UX and Content Slack. You have the, um, uh, the, so the Design Justice um, movement. You have like a whole bunch of different organizations, communities forming around the idea that, hey, money should not be the primary motivator for anything, especially design, right? And we want to talk about things like equity first. We want to talk about things like inclusion first, right? It is not worth doing unless it be inclusive, right? Not, hey, let's do a thing and then see how to make it inclusive, right? No, it's, I don't even want to have the conversation unless it's helping other people who are less powerful than I am. Right, that is a very different place to come from when you're having these kind of conversations. So, I don't know where that's going. I have high hopes. I keep my fingers crossed, and I try to help that engine along. But that is a really interesting conversation, which in my lifetime, at least, has not happened. Like in my day, in my day, you did not question capitalism, right? In my day, 
um, someone like AOC getting in with funding from the socialist Demo or democratic socialists, right? Explicitly, not having to like hide that and hope no one finds out. No, explicitly, the democratic socialists are funding this campaign. That would have been death for a campaign even five years prior, right? Yeah. But now it's like, oh yeah, democratic socialist, tell me more, <laughs> right? Like that, yeah, again, to, to these old eyes, these that's topics. like, oh my God. Um, and I, 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 so I, I'm very curious to see how that goes in the context of like, oh, uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter, whoever wants me to create this algorithm that's going to incentivize like racism. That is part one. Tune in next week for the rest of my conversation with David Dylan Thomas, author of Design for Cognitive Bias. I'm Jeremy Kriegel. I'll see you then.